Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark R. LePage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 306, and this week, how a New York farm boy built one of the top landscape architecture firms in the world with landscape architect Michael Van Valkenburg. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more, all free at RCAT.com. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. And Gusto. Easy online payroll, benefits, and HR built for modern small businesses just like ours. Michael Van Valkenburg, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you. Michael's uh, lifelong dedication to the medium of landscape and its robust material expression is evident in his diverse work, uh, diverse body of work, including gardens, museums, parks of all sizes, campuses, and urban design. Regardless of size, he strives to bring out the potential for every project to move people and to make the world a better place. As head of one of the country's leading landscape architecture firms, uh, Michael promotes collaboration, creativity, and the individual talents of his staff through his inclusive working style. Michael provides senior leadership on a wide range of projects in both New York and Cambridge at his offices 
recent examples include the ongoing completion of Brooklyn Bridge Park, a gathering place in Tulsa, and the intimate Monk's Garden at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, which we'll talk a little bit about later. Uh, Michael's current projects include the Obama Presidential Center in Chicago, the redevelopment of Toronto's Portlands, and the West uh, Riverfront Park in Detroit. Uh, Michael is a registered landscape architect in more than 25 states and in Canada, and is a fellow of the American Academy in Rome, as well as the American Society of Landscape Arcs, Architects. Um, so Michael, thank you for being here. I, I, I shared a little bit about you and what you do, but I'd like to start off our conversation with your origin story. I'd like to sort of go back to where you discovered all of this passion for landscape architecture. So uh, go back there and share your story from that point where you discovered your passion to where you are today. Oh, sure. So, uh, so I'm a country boy. Uh, and uh, it wasn't until I was uh, in a, in my freshman year in college when I was a history major that I heard somebody put the words landscape and architecture together. Yeah. And I remember it well. Uh, it was an ecology professor who said, if I had my life to live again, I wouldn't be an ecologist. I would be a landscape architect. And uh, I suddenly started paying attention in the class. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, I went back to my dorm room. I looked up what landscape architecture was. I applied to uh, another school so I could study landscape architecture. And, uh, you know, 10 months after hearing that, I was in an undergraduate uh, design program studying landscape architecture. When you, when you say that you were a country boy, so did you gr you grew up in the country on a farm? Oh, uh, when I say I'm a country boy, I mean there were 48 people in my rural public high school graduating class, and that my parents were dairy farmers. So so a real country boy. You're you're not just a suburb kid. You're you're a real country boy. No. Oh yeah, real country boy. <laughs> So, so you sort my of high, my high school friends call me the I'm the one that escaped. <laughs> so you grew up sort of with your hands in the dirt and and uh, you know living on the land and sort of understanding understanding agriculture. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of five. Uh, I have three brothers, and i i was the I was the one with the green thumb. Mm -hmm. uh, I you know i I was in charge of the vegetable garden. I liked being outdoors more than being inside so it you know you say when did i discover landscape architecture well i i discovered the profession when i was 18 but i think i was born mm -hmm. you know i think i was born a landscape architect yeah yeah you just didn't know what the definition was right yeah yeah um and so so once you sort of um had that aha moment and you you realized that landscape architecture was was the passion. Um, you went through school and got your degree. And and what what was the original degree? What was what was your original focus? You mean the one that I opted out yeah, of? Yeah, before before landscape architecture. Well, you know, like lots of kids, uh, I was. You know, I wasn't a great student. A lot of, I mean, they told my parents I had to go to vocational school, which you know, by the way, is kind of how it ended up. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I was a history major because 
Uh, I love the idea of history and also my history teacher didn't think I was uh, a loser like all the other teachers did. Mm-hmm. He, he saw the potential. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was a, just a supportive guy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think our, our current educational system sort of pushes kids in into the idea that, you know, college is the only way and you should get a job in an office and get a, you know, a long-term position. And I think kids who have other talents and other strengths that are more like you're describing that you're sort of uh, love to be outside, love to work with your hands, like to build things, that kind of thing um, are, are sort of pushed to the, to the, um, to the trade schools and, and are looked at as almost second, second level citizens. Did you experience that? Oh, without a doubt. Uh, but, but, but the only, P.S. on that is, uh, you know, I'm 68. I love what I do. Uh, retirement is a completely foreign idea to me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get away from what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. Right. Right. And and and. But what 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 I want to point out is that you followed your passion, and and uh, ended up being who you are and what you're doing. It it you, it it provided you with an amazing career. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I think you've hit the nail right on the head that if you're lucky enough to have a passion as a young person and it can be a career, uh, it goes a long way. I mean, no job is easy, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have, I have bad days like everybody else, but you know, when I wake up on Saturday morning and it's the weekend, I'm not like, Oh, I wish this wasn't what I did. You know, it's like, yeah. well, I'm glad the weekend's here. Maybe Monday will be better. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not feeling like the field is not fulfilling me. Yeah. Well, how, how important was that support as a student that, that they sort of recognized that, you know, you had this, this passion and, and sort of introduced you to this other world? Well, I feel extremely lucky. Uh, you know, when you're saying that, I'm like, I'm. It's like a card file, and I'm flipping through. You know, all my professors for yeah. the first few years when I was at Cornell, and um, I mean, just boom, boom, boom. I can think of five, six, seven people that, in their own ways, were encouraging and supportive, and you know, they uh, I think it's terribly important. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a grandparent, and I think that one of the things that that I, an attitude I take with my grandchildren was, look, I, I, I did the parent thing, uh, which, by the way, is much less fun than being a grandparent. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but I'm a very active, I'm, uh, I'm an active grandparent, and, uh, but I think that one of the great things about my grandparents and my life were the way I felt supported by Mm -hmm. them. I don't, I don't mean like they put, you know, pumpkin stickers on my homework, you know, uh, but, but, but I felt embraced by them. You know, I think that's such an important part of finding your way in the world when you're young. Did they have an influence in, in where you went and what you did? I wouldn't say my grandparents did. Um, there's a kind of curious story that I have a great grandfather 
my father's mother's father was uh, a tree salesman before FedEx, before garden centers. And he was devotedly passionate about fruit trees. You know, it was kind of classic upstate New York, you know, Hudson Valley upbringing. But I, I, mean, I had a grandfather who was a tree salesman. And if you wanted to be sarcastic and ironic, you could say that that's what a landscape architect is. <laughs> yeah. Well, he did, did he have... Did, I, push, I push green. Is, I push green. I'm is, a green pusher. Is that ironic or was that really an influence in your life that, that, that your great-grandfather did that and it sort of I'm, it runs in your blood? I, I yeah, I think it runs in my blood. I mm -hmm. think influence in the most profound way. I mean, do, do you have kids? I do. I do. And that's why some of these questions are coming out of my mouth, because I have a sophomore. So, so, how, so how old are your kids? Yeah, I have, I have a 12-year-old in seventh grade. I have a 15-year-old uh, a, a sophomore high school student, and I have an 18-year-old uh, freshman in Syracuse University. So... When they were three or four years old, did you know who they were? Because I'll bet you did. I'll bet they were so fundamentally a nascent form of who they, they've become. And I'm not saying that parenting doesn't matter, mm -hmm. but it's like steering a boat. You know, parenting is like the boat's already in the water and you just try to get it to go a little bit over in that direction. Yeah, 100%. I, 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 I agree with you. I think that they they... They are today. They were shaped. very much who they were when they were when they were small, when they were five or six years old. They're they're, you know, my oldest is a is a you know he's a uh, he loves uh, finance and and uh, entrepreneurism and uh, wants to do real estate and you know build a giant empire. My middle one, who is very much like the story you're telling about yourself. He loves to use his hands and he loves to be outside and he's working on his Eagle Scout and he, he, you know, and he's, and he's a rower, you know, on, 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 a, on the lake. And so he, he, he's struggling to find his place in his future. He doesn't know what he should do with his life. And, and, and he's sort of being pushed into college to sort of find his place in college where maybe, you know, college isn't where he belongs. And, and that's, a, so it's a very interesting thing. And all of these personalities and, and strengths were very apparent when they were younger. Yeah. 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 My, my grandson's your oldest son. Um, he's like, he's so, uh, you know, it sounds awful to say that he's into money. It's not, it's not like he's, it's not, he's not obscene about it at yep. all. Yep. But, you know, I, I once took him, he was like four and we were doing something. He said, help me pick out an ice cream cone. And I said, well, pick the one you like. And he's like, no, come and help me. So he's looking down in the case and he said, how much is that Ben and Jerry's bar? Because he couldn't tell. Yeah. I said, that's $4. And he said, how much is the fudgesicle? I said, that's $1. He's like, I'll have the fudgesicle. <laughs> yeah. He didn't pick the fudgesicle. He picked the one dollar solution, right? <laughs> so right. he would have, he'd have the change in his pocket. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So I actually don't think this is unrelated to design, by the way. But yeah. I'll let I'll let you lead the way. Yeah, um, no, no. I, I, I this podcast is 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 a casual conversation, and it goes wherever it goes. And I'm having a great conversation, and so uh, well, let's, I don't want to I don't want to hesitate from where we're where we're moving along. I do I do want to know, um, you know, how those early influences sort of helped you grow into whom you are today. You know, I think about that a lot, um, and this is going to sound like an extremely passive answer to what you're asking. But um, you know, with 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 your with your second son, you know, the maker, uh, you know, I, you know, I don't particularly sometimes know how you encourage what he's already inclined to do. Mm-hmm. Like I think what we're saying here is. There's some there's some essence of 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 him as a person and you're enabling it by not being discouraging. You know what I'm saying? Yes, 100%. It's like you're allowing you're allowing it to be, you know, like, I, you know, a very big part of how I make decisions as a landscape architect is uh, it's deeply intuitive. I think I think we live, it's a terrible moment in our history where somehow intuitive is a second class word. I mean, so many things that we do in life are deeply intuitive. Like who do we fall in love with? You know, I mean, really, I mean, you know, like, I mean, it's partly who we're attracted to, but you know, the decision, so many of the decisions that we make in our lives are, you know, what, you know, I guess disparagingly, we would say, oh, that was a hunch or I had mm-hmm. an inclination. These are far more profound in in me, you know, in the way that I work. Like, I, I, you know, I just the reason I was late for your call is I had three people. We're, we're starting a new garden for a, for a foundation. And uh, I want to take them out and look at, you know, old bluestone patterns in our neighborhood and talk about you know, not the geometry of the patterns, but how different patterns evoke a different sense when you're around them. I mean, that's deep stuff, you know, that's like, and, and there wasn't any way that I, that I could do it. It's a really nice day here in New York today and, and a nice day to be out. But, you know, I wanted to go, these are young people. These are, you know, people in their twenties and uh, I, they've already got that stuff, but they may not have heard it yet, you know? So I, so that's what we were doing. We were out looking at things and looking at things is a very big part of how I make landscape architecture. You know, it's just looking at stuff. Right. I was, in, I was in, I was in Western Michigan yesterday, starting on a project for Herman Miller. And, uh, you know, I, I'll study what there is to study about that landscape before I finish there. But maybe the most important thing is when you go to a new place, like letting yourself absorb what you see, you know, like, like absorbing it, taking it in doesn't mean that you're going to copy it, but it'll, it should be a factor in what you do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If that makes sense. It does make sense. So when you start a new project and you, you want to go and sort of, absorb what's there um really two questions is that an intentional part of your design process and how long of that uh uh, uh, time 
do you take to do that? Or is that also sort of intuitive? Well, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest fallacies of architecture and landscape architecture is that are, are those designers who pretend, and I truly believe they're pretending, that they know um, all of the dimensions of the project that they're creating. Um, so for me, going to a site gives you a, a reading of its of some things about it that you can't you can't just imagine. You can't you know you can't. When I created the monk's garden, uh, I never could have understood how limiting the uh, the dimensions of the site were. Like what it really means to make a garden in an extremely small space. You, I mean, if you're looking at a sheet of paper on your desk, you can tell yourself that it's small and you can say, oh, well, it's only 60 feet across. And you can think of things that are only 60 feet across. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that um, when you go there and stand in that space, you know, in your body, how contained 60 feet is, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, for, for me, the site visit is very, uh, the parameters of the assignment that you're, um, that you're working on. Yeah. That, that was actually one of my questions about, about the museum and, and the monk's garden, just, just for people who are listening, the monk's garden is a garden at the Isabella Stewart Gardner museum in Boston, uh, which is a famous art museum that has a very famous courtyard. Um, and the monk's garden is sort of uh, from from my and I, I don't remember I, I visited the 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 museum when I was in college, um, and I don't remember the monk's garden, um, and I know that your garden wasn't there yet, but but I don't remember that space. But looking at the book um, uh, that you, that you've written about it, um, it almost looks like it was an afterthought for that for that building and that and that space. So. That was one of my questions is how do you approach the design to integrate that space into the museum that features such uh, an amazing amount of art and that very famous courtyard? How, how you know, ab absorbing that space and understanding what that space is in reference to the rest of the, the museum must be such an important piece of the design process. Well, uh, um, I mean, you said it very well. The building has this um, gasping interior courtyard, four stories clear to the sky. And, you know, we're, we're talking about 1900 in Boston. This was this was a very big deal uh, to make a space like that, you know, 120 years ago. Uh, and it's it's as moving today as it was originally. And this garden, it does feel like a like a leftover space at the side. And Mrs. Gardner and the museum directors subsequent to her uh, death never really created a garden over there that they felt uh, was good enough, you know, to be part of the Gardner Museum. So after Renzo Piano did his addition. Uh, the director uh, did a search and chose me um, to create this very small but kind of important garden. And 
you know, in, in the book I wrote for the for for Monticelli on this, uh, you know, I basically say somewhat not as directly as this, but, I, but but basically the garden that I made tries in every way to be the opposite of the interior courtyard. The in, interior courtyard is open and spacious and very, you know, very sparely decorated with plants. Um, it's almost impossible to think that in my garden, you could have gotten more plants in there. It's like jam packed. It's packed <laughs> right. with yeah. plants. Yeah. And it's, and it's very freeform. Whereas the garden, I mean, the courtyard and the building is very, very rigid. Um, and your garden is, is about as freeform as you can possibly get. I don't know how it could be more freeform. <laughs> yeah. It could not be more freeform. That's the whole idea. It's, it's a, you know, it's, uh, the earlier version of the book was called Getting Lost, and it was basically, you know, I mean, Getting Lost is, of course, something that uh, we all like. I mean, none of us want to get lost, you know, in the Sierra Madres, but, you know, we all like getting lost in moments in our daily lives, right? So many things in life are about getting lost, you know, you having a cup of tea or, you know, you, you know, so many things. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking when I was doing this garden um, about taking my grandkids to museums when they were really little and how much they didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, didn't didn't do that too many other times because it just wasn't who they were, you know. Yeah. But I thought this would be a great place for kids to let off some steam when they've been when they've been drugged to the museum that they didn't want to go to. And I'm, you know saying that all in a joking way because I love museums myself, you know, but, uh, you know, you just go out there and it doesn't tell you what to do. It just invites you, you know, there's no beginning, there's no end, there's no middle, there's no hierarchy, you know, there's no, there's no announcement of threshold. There's no terminus. You just go out there and wander around and feel good. Yeah, the the for people who are listening, the book is called "Designing a Garden" um, by Michael Van Valkenburg. Um, it it basically is a it 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 documents the design process of the Monk's Garden at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, um, and it's a great book for anyone who's interested in garden design at any level because it traces the process of the entire design process from the very inception with design sketches and, and very, you know, big free-forming, probably sketched during the that period of time where Michael is sort of absorbing the space all the way through to completion uh, with with great photographs and, and great documentation about the garden. So it's a great book for anybody who's interested in garden and garden design. Yeah, yeah, thank you. The book uh, took six years to get together. The garden took a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> the book was a lot harder to do than the garden was. There's in the book, and actually in, in the book, there's a, there's great photographs, and and you talked about bringing and you know uh, having a place where children could sort of break free from the rigidity of the museum, and and there's a great photograph in the book of a child, probably I don't know, maybe nine or ten years old. You know, you could see his back running through the trees of this winding path. It's such a great photograph, and it illustrates exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a uh, that that's a 
son of one of the guys that works for me, and I love that photograph. Yeah. And I've been there many times, just, you know, sitting there being a bump on the log. Nobody knows who I am. And I watch kids come out, and they just, in the best sense, they freak. They're like, oh, my gosh, this looks, this says fun is, you know, what they read when they come out the door, and they go tearing off. Yeah. And parents probably also understand that that's okay. You know, because I think when parents bring kids like you, you, know, you had mentioned, when Karen, parents bring kids to a museum, they're very forced to stay within control, right? And that they have to be quiet and they have to, you know, look at the art and, you know, not run around. And, and when they probably break that threshold from the museum into the garden, it probably sends message to everyone that it's okay to sort of be who you are in this space. Yeah, absolutely. We will return to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors, RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto. If you work with specifications in your firm, you probably have come across outdated manufacturer specs with confusing notes, products that no longer exist, or even maybe even companies that no longer exist. Maybe you even pay for specifications. Stop. Stop right now. There's a better way to find manufacturer specifications for your project documentation. RCAT. RCAT.com. RCAT is the number one most used website for finding building product information and has a free library of over 1,400 up-to-date accurate specifications written by FCSI, CCS, and AIA professionals based on manufacturer's data. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find the right specifications for your project and quickly download them in multiple formats for free. That's right, RCAT is completely free. You don't even need to register. Just go to RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. RCAT.com. And start building better content today. Do you remember when you started your architecture firm? Well, maybe you're in the middle of that right now. Maybe you are in the middle of launching your architecture firm. It's not easy, is it? It takes lots of late nights, early mornings, and maybe even the occasional all-nighter. Well, we are crazy busy, so why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners like us. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you way more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumpled receipts. Create and send professional looking invoices in 30 seconds, and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. Yep, tax time's coming up. And the best part, FreshBooks grows alongside your business, so you'll always have the tools that you need when you need them, without ever having to learn the ins and the outs of accounting. Join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it for free. Free for 30 days, no catch, no credit card. Visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and enter EntreeArchitect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. To get started, visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. What do you think of when you hear the words payroll, and benefits. Payroll and benefits. Does that make your skin crawl? Does it make your spine tingle? 
Payroll and benefits are hard. It's okay. It's hard, especially when you're a small business like us. You don't have time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. A couple of more words that might make your skin crawl. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way that we're working today. Gusto is making payroll benefits and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does all the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. To help support the show, the Entree Architect podcast, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to entrearchitect.com slash Gusto to claim your free three months of payroll processing. That's entrearchitect.com slash Gusto for three months free. RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. Uh, also, in, in the book, there's there's a copy of an original letter from Ann Hawley, who is the director of the museum, uh, dated in the fall of 2011 is the date of the letter. And in the letter, it she talks about, you know, welcoming you to the team and 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 uh, her expectations of the of the garden um, and a deadline saying that she'd like the garden to be installed in the spring of 2013. The letter was dated in the fall of 2011. And you said that sort of a very um, uh, a very quick process from design inception through completion. It opened in the fall of yeah. 2013. Were there any challenges in keeping that deadline? You know, I, there was some very particular reason why after we were hired, we didn't start for six months and it, it was nothing. Uh, but it's the kind of thing that all designers experience where, I don't know if it was alignment with a fiscal year or, you don't know, know exactly what it was, but there was a big hurry. And then we really, you know, you're right. We were hired in the fall, but we really then, um, we didn't do anything for, for quite a while. And then, and then the next year we built the garden in quite a small window of time. Like I think, I think it took us about 12, 12 or 14 weeks to build it. How, how do you at this level, and this may go back to sort of the origins of your firm, you know, how do you get invited to a, uh, a project like this. I recently spoke with Gene Cohn of Cohn Pearson Fox Architects on the podcast. Right. Um, and he was, right. and he was talking about how they gain a lot of their work through networking and developing, you know, very real relationships. Gene sort of does this naturally where he becomes friends with people and through those relationships over the years, and he's building these relationships way before there's any architecture that's needed. He's just building relationships because right. he likes people and he's building this huge network of real connections. Um, and a lot of the work that comes to KPF comes through this process that other right. principals now have learned that process as well. How do you go about getting the level of work? This is one of the most famous, you know, firms, landscape firms in the world doing the most famous, you know, design work in the world. Um, how do you get the projects at that level? And that might be sort of a, a an evolution of the of the process. Uh, do you know what a mensch is? Yes. Yes. But for people who don't understand what a mensch is, you might want to explain that. 
I grew up in Paramus, New Jersey, not far from New York. Yeah, so 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 so, so I I grew up in the Borscht Belt Catskill, so very enmeshed in Jewish culture. You know, uh, you know, the, a mensch is like the best kind of guy, like the, you know, just so likable, so so easy to be around. Gene Cohn is a mensch. Yeah, very um, yeah. I don't know if you've ever met him in person, but he's just so affable. He's so likable. Uh, you know, I, I, another way to 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 build, you know, uh, uh, the opportunity to get work is is just to do great work your whole life. And you know, when I was really young, I I asked my own question like the one you just asked me of a client who was very successful, and he said, and you know, and he was a money he was in finance, but he was a white collar guy. And he said, you know, people who do the kinds of things that you do and that I do, it's unseemly to advertise yourself. It, 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 it doesn't work. It's, it's suspect when people do that. What you need to do is to make work that's good enough that other people say that you do good work, that you're good to work with, you know, that you deliver. Um, so that's been more our model where, you know, like this project that we're doing for this foundation is extremely small, but, you know, I took the time today to take my design crew out and just have this leisurely sort of morning of looking at paving, you know, and we've hardly started the design, but, you know, the ambience of our work is so re related to its materiality. And I, I think that, you know, it re relates back to an early theme in this conversation that you're doing what you're true to, you know, that you believe in the work that you do. And I mean, B Robert Venturi once said to me of himself, you know, uh, my firm works 50% harder than other architects to be 10% better than they are. Um, rather pompous thing to say, but you know, Bob was capable of that. But I also think it was, you know, to be better in a design field, you have to work incredibly hard. It's really, you know, a little more effort doesn't make you that much better. A lot more effort makes you a little better. You know, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, so how how do you your firm you have two offices one in Brooklyn New York one in Cambridge Massachusetts you have uh, over a hundred employees is that correct yeah and, shockingly and so yes it's, so it's a very large firm how do you um, uh, translate that culture to the firm of a hundred people who will most likely outlast you. Right, that firm will probably continue well, to. Every, 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 everybody who are the emerging leadership mm -hmm. of the firm, the people who are becoming partners of the firm, all grew up, literally grew up, at my office. Mm -hmm. Like every one of them, has been here for you know twenty to thirty years. Like they came here as kids, you know. Yep. So the, there is a first generation of MBB a leadership who uh, uh, sounds important to self-important to say, but um, uh, you know, they, they grew up uh, with me, yeah. you know, their, yeah. their careers took shape 
Whitney. So they, they were immersed in the culture that was inherent in who you were and how you ran your firm. They just experienced it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So are they putting in, a, or, or you, and or you as an executive committee, are you putting in uh, any sort of systems or processes into the into the fabric of the culture of the firm to make sure that that continues beyond the current uh, executive team? Well, it's inform you know it's informally in the in the culture of the office mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Um, but you know, I think I'm still a big part of that. L- look. Uh, you know, I don't get all these talented people that have been here for so long staying here by micromanaging their every decision. Like the people who are the other uh, partners in the firm who are the, I mean, all of the partners have a great deal of, they have a great deal of autonomy. Okay. They really do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we all are part of a culture that says, if you see some work going on in the office that doesn't feel up to the standards of what has made this firm what it is, then, you know, steps need to be taken. We need to circle the wagons. We need to get the designers of the technical people together and, you know, and, and, and work our way through. Um, so that's kind of like, you know, the, a shared sense of wanting to do, the best we can is probably the thing that, you know, holds us together and keeps the quality at a hundred people. The other thing I would say is that at this point in our life, we don't, we don't run a hundred person firm designing, you know, $500,000 gardens. I mean, we have a project moving a river in Toronto, creating a whole new urban neighborhood. We're making a very big parks, you know, in Buffalo, in Detroit, in Raleigh, in Dallas. I mean, these are projects that have really big teams of people working on them, you know, 10, 15, 20 people in the firm all working on these projects. Each one of those 10 or 15 or 20 people don't require the same amount of time from me that a garden a courtyard garden at the Gardner Museum requires. Do you know what I mean? Yes, like there's yes. just a lot. You know, you're moving a river in Toronto. You are doing engineering. You're doing, you know, architecture. You're doing urban design. And so it's a, it's it, it supports a, we, we could never be an office the size we are if we weren't working on a mix of big and small projects. Right, right. But it sounds like the is that clear? Yes, is that clear? Absolutely. And but but it sounds like that um, in order to get to that level of projects where you can grow a firm that large and be able to have a, a, the projects that support a firm of that size, it takes and it may be inherent inherent in who you are and and the culture that sort of grew out of who you are and the team that you originally had. Um, but I think that right. that, that culture. Uh, is very important to of of designing the best work you can design and 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 being good people because I could hear through this conversation the type of person who you are and the the ability to have uh, an executive staff or partners who've been with you since the very beginning of their careers that says a lot about who you are uh, and that that you allowed them to be who they are uh, and was and with a low ego 
when someone has a very large ego and it's all about them, it's very hard for you to build a firm that you're describing. Um, and so I, I, I asked these questions and I asked questions like, similar to, to Gene um, because there are a lot of small firms who are listening who wants to be big firms, right? And, and there's a lot of startup firms who are just beginning and they have these dreams of building these big firms and there's nowhere out there that says, this is how you build a big firm. And when I talk to Gene and I talk to you, you're answering very similar, uh, give, providing very similar answers to questions that I, that I ask. Well, I have one piece of advice for the principal of a small firm out there who wants her or his firm to be bigger be very honest with yourself about what you are and are not good at. And don't hire a lot of people that are good at what you're good at. Hire a lot of people that are good at what you're not good at. And then give them lots of responsibility. Uh, and it's going to work out okay. You know, I mean... <laughs> When I was, you know, starting my firm and I was like 31, you know, once a month, my wife and I would get together with a shoebox full of receipts and we would do billing. How well do you think that worked out for me? <laughs> <laughs> like the first thing I did was to get somebody who was good at, at, at business. I don't mean a business manager. I mean, I just hired somebody who would write checks and balance the checkbook and make sure we invoiced people for things we spent. And cause I'm not good at that. And that's a very easy to understand example. But you know, one of the partners in our firm is an architect who's now a landscape architect and he operates at an urban scale. And there's a, a, a woman who's, you know, probably the most knowledgeable builder of landscapes in the world. She's just profoundly recognized as a maker. You know, she, she just knows how the world goes together. And, you know, and, and yada, you know, every, everybody who's a leader in the firm brings something slightly different. Those are not things that are, you know, my strengths. Uh, and I don't know, I just, I, I try to, I've tried to create a, I do the hiring in the firm. I am, I am responsible for the hiring because I think that the team that you assemble, not just their skill set, but their appetite for what we do. Like you, you, you bring somebody in who's ambivalent about whether they're really passionate about what the office does. You've created a huge problem for yourself. Like everybody has to be passionate about what the office does. This is a really hard way to make a living. It really is. I mean, you know, I don't think any architect or landscape architect would say, oh, you know, this is really easy. It's, you know, nine to five, five days a week. Uh, yeah, that's about half the number of hours that you work. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's why Entree Architect exists. It's, it's a platform to help architects build better businesses because we've never been taught that. We don't know, you know, we don't come out of architecture school and say, okay, we have all the skills to design and, you know, to, to, to design and build a business, right? And so you need to learn how to do that. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that helped me a lot in the early part of my career 
was finding other people in the field, uh, my competitors, who a couple times a year we would sit down and compare notes about things. You know, things you were willing to share, yes, you know, yep, yep. like, uh, you know, the cost of health care or, you know, indirect cost in running an office or how much do you spend on job development? I mean, all those things that matter, you know, uh, you know, they're not what the it's <laughs> they're not what's talked about in a book about the monk's garden, but they are the platform that that creativity has to happen on. And, you know, my feeling about running a business is you have to think about the success of your business as a business every day, but you don't have to think about it all day every day. You just have to make sure every day that somebody is minding the store, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, on, on Monday morning, if you don't know, uh, how the people in your office are spending their week and where they're billing their time to, then, you know, you're just not running your firm. You know, it's not a, it's not a, it's, it's not a free for all has to be, uh, organized. Uh, and I'm not great at that. I have another guy who's just like, he's a natural people are managed by him and he does it in a way that makes them feel good. Not bad. Like management can, so change the spirit of, uh, you know, of, of people's behavior in the office has to be done with a light touch. Yeah. And and you were talking about, you were talking about strengths and that's exactly right. Is that your strength is design and, and building a team and, and you need to have, especially at a firm of a hundred people, you need to have someone who is passionate, just as passionate about the business, about about the the structure and the organization, which you know a lot of architects and designers, they don't want anything to do with any of that. But but you can find people who do, who have that passion, uh, and can, can and help you grow the the design and or the the business end of your business. Yeah, well, back to you know, I did a lot of work with KPF back in the day, and. Uh, you know, I, I, I've, I know the, the business acumen that, Jim, that, uh, that Mr. Cohn brings to that partnership. Um, right. He's not, by the way, somebody who doesn't appreciate design. Oh, yeah. You know? No, he started his... It's, it, it's it, it kind was of a, wonderful. Yeah, it, it, we, it was a great conversation that, that we had, and he talked about his whole early career. He was actually a designer, and, the, and, and that's a, a perfect example of what we were just talking about with strengths. That when he built KPF, he he brought on um, uh, Bill Pedersen and uh, Sheldon Fox because they had those those incredible strengths. That, that Bill had this this design strength that was better than his. Although he loved to design, he was a designer, but he recognized that he his strength was business and building this business, and that he could bring on Bill, who was even better at design, to focus on the design side. Oh yeah, well that was a that was an amazing pairing. I got to see them in action. It was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, uh, Michael, this is this is a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you opening up not only about your design but about your firm and how the firm works. Um, for anybody who wants to learn more about you, uh, the firm's name is Michael Van Valkenburg Associates. The website is MVVA. I-N-C, so mvvainc.com. We'll have links to all of that on the show notes, so you don't need to write that down. We'll have it there. 
Um, the the book the book's title is Gardening. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Designing a Garden. Designing a Garden. It's available everywhere that books are sold. But we'll have a link to Amazon uh, as well for that book. It, and I, again, I think anybody, even I, I think every architect should have this book um, on their shelf because it's a book about the process of design. And so uh, I would highly recommend that you go to the show notes and click that link and go uh, buy Michael's book. Michael, thank you very much for uh, spending some time here with me and, uh, and this great conversation. I really enjoyed spending some time with you here. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. I really enjoyed that conversation with Michael. This is episode 306, so the link to the show notes for everything we discussed is entrearchitect.com slash episode 306. Again, the book's title is Designing a Garden. It is available everywhere books are sold. We will have a link on the show notes for the book. Um, again, that book is a book that you should have on your shelf. It is a beautiful book. It has beautiful photographs in it, but it documents the design process of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, the Monk's Garden, that Michael and his team designed and installed at the, at the, um, the Gardner Museum in Boston. It is a fantastic book in terms of design process to sort of document the entire design process from those initial concept ideas all the way through finishing it up and, and, and launching it. Very, very interesting book. Um, again, the firm name is Michael Van Valkenburg Associates. The website is mvvainc.com, M-V-V-A inc.com. You can learn all about Michael's firm over there. Um, one other point I wanted to highlight is during the conversation with Michael, he had mentioned that one of the keys to his success is meeting with this group of other design professionals, other people at his level who are also building out firms um, and they're learning from one another. And that's exactly what we do at Entree Architect Masterminds. And you can do that too. You can learn all about Entree Architect membership and Entree Architect Masterminds at our homepage at entrearchitect.com. Just wanted to point that out. One of the keys to success for one of the most uh, successful landscape architecture firms in the world, mastermind groups. So you can get on your own mastermind group right there with the Entree Architect membership, entrearchitect.com. All right, well, that wraps up today's show. Hope to see you next week. Love, learn, share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. 
in drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively that (laughs) then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us can we do this are we ready to do this are we prepared can we do it did we just decide a name (laughs) we did it guys one that came out of nowhere it came out of nowhere i liked it i saw it ready to turn your aspirations into reality Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.